0: The parent-child relationship is, by definition, totally lopsided, with parents doing most of the giving and forgiving, and kids doing most of the getting and forgetting. Which is exactly how it's supposed to be. We're wired to give our children our all. And our kids are wired to take whatever they need. But what happens when our own parents need parenting? My dad died of a sudden massive heart attack when I was 15. At the time, I was away at summer camp. It wasn't a damn thing I could have done, but still, I wish I'd been there for him. Decades later, my mom offered me plenty of opportunity to help while she slowly died of Lou Gehrig's disease, and I was there for her. Switching roles and becoming my mom's caregiver provided some of the most loving, grace-filled times of my life. Those ten months, between her diagnosis and her death, were also the most emotionally draining, anxiety-ridden days I've ever known. And I'm grateful for every minute. That experience transformed our relationship and me along with it. Both for good. If you're lucky enough to still have parents, May you have many more joyful years together. But medical miracles notwithstanding, at some point, it's likely they will need you in ways you cannot imagine. I'm Annie Fox, and this is Family Confidential, Secrets of Successful Parenting. Today's show, When Parents Need Parenting. My guest today is Lynn Goodwin, author of You Want Me to Do What? Journaling for Caregivers. Lynn is the publisher of Writer Advice. She's also a teacher, editor, freelance writer, former caregiver, and journaling workshop facilitator. Thank you. It's nice to be here. I'm delighted to be here. I'm glad you got here. You (laughs) got a little lost, but you found us. And I think this is interesting metaphor because getting lost often leads to self-discovery and then you get to the place where you pictured yourself maybe in the middle of that fear and anxiety of being lost. I just wish I was there already. And it seems to me to lend itself a lot to your book, you want me to do what? Journaling for caregivers. And I would love to have you talk this morning with the people who are listening who might find themselves in that position. What I learned from your book is there are millions of them taking care of aged parents, um, spouses who are debilitated in some way, kids with chronic illnesses. And so I, I would love for you to start off just telling us What is the difference between a caretaker and a caregiver? That's a very good question.
1: A caretaker waters the plants and a caregiver gives care to humans who can respond back would be my definition of the two. I thought about the fact that this was a bit of a metaphor for the book and for my life as I was driving here. Parts were so familiar and parts just didn't make sense on the roads. And that's a lot like caring for my mother in the last six years. In many ways, she was exactly like she had always been, only a little more so. And she was also, there were times when things just didn't make sense, and I couldn't quite tweak the world to make it make sense for her. And of course, I thought it was my responsibility to make the world work for my mother. And I totally lost track of the fact that I had a role in this too and I had certain rights and certain needs and all of that sort of got taken away. And one of the ways I processed it, really the best way, practically the only way that I processed it was by writing in my journal. So let me ask you a question then, what is journaling? Journaling is writing. Uh, Journaling is writing from the heart. I think one of the people in my first workshop said, writing from the heart seems to be all that is needed when she took the class. And she is exactly right. Um, She's a college professor, and I think she was maybe hoping for some higher standards and some feedback on her writing. And all of that can come in time. But when you're journaling, it's all about you and the and the paper, and the pen, and getting your feelings out. There is no wrong way to do it. You can write in sentences. You can write in lists. You can draw if you want to. Whatever you want to do is fine because it's your journal. It can become a record of where you were at a specific moment. It can become an indicator of your voice and what you have to say. It can be whatever you want it to be.
0: One thing I remember reading in your book is you said that you encourage people to date each journal entry. Yes, absolutely. And I think that makes a lot of sense because it is a journey. And to be able to get a snapshot of where you were to see that three weeks later, you're no longer there. And when you date your journal,
1: put not only the day, but also the year because you might be doing this for more than one year. It can be fascinating to compare year to year on a particular date. Um, Yeah, absolutely date your journal entries. It will matter later,
0: and it is a record. Now, journal writing is something I'm guessing that you have done for years? Off and on. I kept a journal in college, which
1: I still have, For a while, I didn't really have time to write in a journal because I was very busy teaching high school English and drama, and then teaching in college as well as high school and just doing a variety of things. But journaling came back into my life when I took a leave from high school, and again, much more strongly, I believe it was 1997, I had given my mother a blank book because it looked pretty, and I thought maybe she'd do something with it. She wasn't really sure what to do with it, but the following Christmas, she gave me a blank book with Snoopy dancing on the cover and lines, (laughs) and it was very suitable for a fifth grader, and that was fine. Um, And that whole year, I was just starting with writer advice, which is my e-zine, and I kept quotes from books uh, when I would be interviewing the author. And so that book is full of quotes and occasional reactions to those quotes. And that started me journaling again, and then life kept me journaling.
0: So when you became a full-time caregiver for your mom, what was she suffering from? Well, first of all, I have to correct that. From her point of view, I was never a
1: full-time caregiver. Okay. Um, and <laughs> and that, that, w- <laughs> yeah, that, w- that was part of the deal, was that she didn't need a caregiver. She was fine to be alone. As long as I came by every day, took out the garbage, drove her to her appointments, went to the post office box, went to the grocery store, et cetera. Right. I can see from the look on your face that you get it. She was fine to be alone as long as I was only a phone call away. And I bought into that mentality. When I was her caregiver, I would um, I would go home and journal. And about this time, I read Julia Cameron's The Artist's Way, and I started the morning pages, and those really worked for me. I remember a lot of days sitting at an old wooden table I had had since the 70s and writing about the light coming in the window and the sounds I heard, and eventually I would start to write in bits and pieces about the whole caregiving situation, about my mother. My mother was a very private person, and it felt awkward to even write about her. And then I started considering my handwriting, and I realized it was probably gonna stay pretty private. (laughs) And so I would write a little more and a little more. I had no idea that I was processing anything.
0: That was my next question. Were you aware that you were using this as a support for yourself and your your emotions?
1: I didn't have a clue. I only knew that when I was done, I felt better. Describe better. Less stressed, less eager to tear my hair out, less eager to slam my fists on the table... Go, oh, my God, what am I doing? Um, not inclined to scream or whatever. And this makes me sound like a rather erratic person. Not at all. It sounds very normal. Uh, yeah. I, I am more and more finding out that most caregivers feel that way at some point because they're just going, I can't take this anymore. And of course you can't take it anymore. What I lost track of was the fact that I, I had a right to a life. Because I didn't have kids... Or a spouse, I felt like, fine, I'm in the sandwich generation, but I'm an open-face sandwich. I really am available to take care of my mom 24-7. She took care of me, I had a chance at a life, I blew it, and now this is what I have. And my journal was my way to get a little perspective on these really, really, really squirrely thoughts that raced through my head and have raced through the heads of pretty much every caregiver that I have written with.
0: I was thinking about my darkest days as a caregiver and times that I just felt suffocated and trapped and that this would forever be my life. And I wanted to ask you about journaling the dark side and giving voice to those feelings that are not loving, that are not compassionate, because... We've all had those.
1: Uh, True, including me. Um, And of course you should journal those feelings. It's fine to write in really bad handwriting. It's fine to... And you say that because... And I say that because that way nobody can ever read it. Um, it's, It's really very true if you have ever looked at somebody else's handwriting and it's not good. You find yourself skipping a lot of stuff and not really processing it and moving through very quickly, even if you want to get to the content because you can't quite be sure what it is. It's also okay to put initials for for words that you really don't want to write out completely or first syllables. You'll know what they're about. Let the rest of the world guess. I distinctly remember... If my caregiving started in June of 95, I remember about 96 or 97 or 98, I guess I don't remember which year, carrying my mother's garbage out yet again. And it was so nice to be out of the stale air of her place and into the open air. And I remember thinking, how much longer, God? And I looked up at the trees and the leaves were starting to turn And I wondered if she would be around for the next year and then uh, the next time the leaves turned. And then I wondered if I would be around the next year, the next time the leaves turned. Because I was feeling pretty pretty falling apart at this time. And and I didn't have a right to fall apart. Oh, sure you did. Well, I didn't know that because she was 35 years older than I was. And therefore, if she was holding it together, I had an obligation to hold it together. And so I'm thinking, who will go first? And I said at one point at work, I, I turned to somebody who I trusted, and I said, sometimes I think she's going to outlive me. And she looked at me, and she'd never met my mother. She looked me up and down, and she said it could happen. And that was very scary. Um, there were times when I'd go in, and she'd be sleeping. And I would the thought of the pillow on the other bed, and how easy it would be to move it over, would flitter through my head, and I never let it stay there. And of course, I didn't want to do that. But... What I wanted was my freedom. And isn't that what everybody wants? If I wrote about those feelings, it downsized them hugely. And that was an enormous help. Um, So, of course, you write about the horrible stuff. And don't hold back. Get a spiral notebook. You can always tear those pages out and burn them if you choose to do so. But I hope you don't choose to do so Or I hope you choose to make a copy first and put it in a sealed envelope where no one will ever find it and you'll know where it is for someday if you ever want to look at it again. Then if you want to burn it as a sacrificial
0: offering to whatever, go ahead. That brings me to something. The idea of rituals after the passing of the person you've been caring for and the passing of this very intense period of your life. What do you have to say about that? <sighs> Rituals are very important. My
1: mother bought a lot of candles in her life, and she didn't burn them. And I am burning those candles one at a time. I have uh, one of her. One of her matching. She has a matching set of silver candlesticks. I I separate them. I have one on my desk, and always with a candle probably from the 60s, maybe from the 50s in it. And I often light those as I am journaling. And that's a kind of ritual. It's a, it's a letting go. It's maybe opening up to another world, if you believe that kind of thing. Um, it's, it's a ritual for moving on for me. And I hadn't identified it
0: as that, so thank you. Who told you that you had to do this 24-7 because of all the reasons that you just... Well, you know, I'm available, and I don't have anything else to do with my life. Who who told you that you weren't entitled to other things in your life? A little voice in my head told me that. Mm-hmm. Um, was your mom at all reinforcing that voice?
1: I don't think she was consciously. I'm sure I heard things that were not said. I'm sure that there were tones that she didn't mean me to hear as I did. Mm-hmm. She had a... Um, an incident that resulted in carotid artery surgery in 1996. And when the doctor was talking to her about needing care, she said, my daughter has always been there for me, and now I'm just going to take advantage of it. And he kind of looked at me, and I just looked away, because I knew it was true, and I knew that there wasn't anybody else to do this. Mm -hmm. So... So
0: I did it. So sometimes we do it because we can, and sometimes we do it because there's no one else to do it. Right. Um, And I guess from my own experience, just so our listeners know, in 1994 when you began your, Mm -hmm. your journey with your mom in this capacity, mine was ending. My mother died in 1994, and it was really only for 10 months, the last 10 months of her life after she got a diagnosis of having ALS. That I was a caregiver, I was the not full time she had a home health aide mm-hmm. I was there every single day and um, did what family does in terms of emotional support that a person who is hired doesn't do so but it's wonderful yeah it, it and of course, extraordinarily um. Heart-wrenching and um, suffocating and all of those things that that you describe in your introduction and the feelings that you are hoping to help your readers through the journaling get to so that they can release. My thought about it was that a network of support, rather than it all falling on one person, makes so much sense health-wise for the caregiver. And I think that when we're in this experience, we don't often think about what else might be available, just even in our own community. But as you say, it's impossible to be on 24-7. Absolutely it is. And my mom and I
1: both knew that we should not live together. I live 22 minutes from her condo. (laughs) But who's counting? (laughs) Yeah, but who is counting? Um, And that's at 11 o'clock at night, uh, which is when I timed it. Um, And that was back roads. So I was close enough that I could go up there. We both knew that we wouldn't make it if, if I tried to be there all of the time. So she knew there were issues. But she needed help. And she was not willing to accept outside help. There were times... I used to tutor online from 8 to 10, and I would get offline and head straight for the refrigerator. And after I had calmed down from helping four or five people simultaneously while also maintaining the room, I would call her up, and she was lying in bed waiting for my call. And sometimes in those very late-night calls... She would occasionally say what if i have alzheimer's and so i told her a story that had been told to me by a learner at project second chance about keys she said do you ever misplace your keys and i said of course and she said when you find them do you know what to do with them and i said of course and she said you don't have alzheimer's she told me a doctor had told her this I told my mother that story, and yes, she had misplaced her keys, and yes, she would know what to do with them. She fought very, very hard against this fear that she might have this disease. She never, ever, ever left her kitchen without checking to make sure the stove was off. It made no difference if she'd had something or not. Uh, just obsessively, if she could never leave the stove on in the kitchen, She truly believed she was staving off Alzheimer's. So she fought it in every way she knew how. Was she diagnosed with Alzheimer's? Not until the end. She fought very hard to make sure that she could stay in her home. And so to avoid that diagnosis and because of pride, she was really very together in the doctor's office. And I understand that this is a characteristic also of people who have ADHD that they can keep it together in certain situations. And I wonder about the brain and what overlap there may be between Alzheimer's and ADHD and the stresses it puts on the mind. She kept it together. At one point in the fall of 2000, a physical therapist came to the house and my mother did not want to see her, did not want to walk for her. And so she was very defensive. And the physical therapist picked up some symptoms that something more was wrong, told the doctor who began looking for it. And then in February of 2001, on February 14th, a woman who was coming in to help her get dressed, who I knew, who I'd hired, who I had worked with, found her on the floor. Uh, she'd been there most of the night mm. and couldn't get up, couldn't get to the bathroom. Oh, scary. Yeah, it was pretty scary. So she called me to come over, and she showed me the condition the room was in. She stayed for a little bit, and then I stayed with my mother and took her to the doctor on the 15th. By the time we got to the doctor on the 15th, she decided that she had chosen to get down on the floor, mm-hmm. that she wanted to stay on the floor, etc., And that seemed to be, be the trigger for the doctor to realize something was very wrong. He put her in the hospital, ostensibly, to check her blood pressure, while waiting for her neurologist to come and make an assessment, and he took, like, two minutes to know that she did have Alzheimer's. Did she know of the diagnosis? No, um, her primary care physician told me never to tell her the diagnosis. And what do you think about that
0: as you give advice?
1: I understand that it varies with the individual, and I know he thought it would just upset her. If a person has Alzheimer's and they are told the diagnosis, they might not even remember it. I think that a woman as independent as my mother had the right to know and to understand that what she had was a condition Not that she was losing her mind, not that she was going nuts, but she had a physical condition beyond her control. Beyond her control would have been a stretch for my mother, because she was able to control everything. Mm. But I think it would have been okay for her to
0: make that stretch at the end of her life. So you knew something about her condition that she didn't know, which put you in a a weird place, I would think.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Hmm. That's exactly right. I was very uncomfortable not telling her the truth. Uh, It it wasn't that I lied to her. I simply never told her what was wrong with her. I became very willing to let her have her own way, which she loved.
0: What did she think was
1: wrong with her? That she was getting old. Mm -hmm. That her legs were not responding when she sent them a signal, if she thought it that far. She... She called herself crippled towards the end when she was using a walker and then a wheelchair. Mm -hmm. And I I told her she wasn't crippled. She was having movement issues, but she said, no, I'm crippled. People don't appreciate walking while they have it. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to tell her I did appreciate walking. I just got very tired of some of the walks I took.
0: Mm. But I didn't say that. So when you heard your mother's diagnosis, how did the journaling help you process that? Oh, um... Because that's what they say, the long goodbye. That yeah, it is. There's no happy ending out of that diagnosis. It helped me, first of all, with practical things,
1: uh, making lists of things I needed to do to get her into a um, an assisted living facility, Uh, I made lists of things I need to bring her. And then somewhere in the midst of the list, I'd start to write about fears. And I realized fear is a feeling, but I was going to say fears more than feelings and how I would cope and who I should tell and whether I had a right to tell and what I would say if I did tell. And that was the beginning of planning for me. And planning is very important, of course.
0: I'm going to ask you to read Something that you've written in your book, it's at the beginning, I'm assuming, and you're using them as examples of how one might use the prompts in this book of prompts for caregivers, but I'm assuming that they are prompts from your own journal.
1: I wish I had had these prompts when I was a caregiver, and I suppose I did to a certain extent. I had done prompts before, but I think if I had had these, it would have helped me it would have given me permission to write down some of the things that needed to get written down. So I would be happy to read this. Please. Today, I feel poverty-stricken. I hate having no income. The money you give me doesn't count. It feels like an unearned gift. I want to earn my own money detached from you. I want to feel productive and independent. I don't want to feel like a nine-year-old doing chores for an allowance. Selfish? Maybe. But when do I get to do what I want to do? Don't get me wrong. I love you. I know you need me, even when you toss your head and say, I can do it myself. But when do I get to leave the stale odors and draining drivel of this place and do what I want to do? Today, I feel sad. You didn't want your breakfast. You didn't want to talk. Neither do I. I want to stare at the dust motes floating in the sunshine that's streaming through the screen door. So mindless, like me. If I were a dust mote, I'd have no hands or feet or responsibilities. Today, I feel hopeful because Christy is coming while I go shopping, and I'll have an extra hour. I've been emailing this really nice 60-year-old divorced man on Craigslist, and today we're going to meet for coffee at Starbucks. I have a coffee date, and I feel like a teenager sneaking away to meet some hottie.
0: (laughs) Thank you. You're welcome. I wish I had had prompts like that. I didn't really
1: get these prompts going until about two years after uh, my mother was gone. I joined a free writing group, and we were supposed to bring prompts. And I was probably one of two people who did the first time, and they liked my prompts, which were sentence starts. And so I have been. I have six years worth of prompts stored away on my computer uh, when the group took a look at this book, many of them saw familiar prompts. I knew they would work because many times they would take those prompts and no two people ever went in the same direction. And I had had a similar experience when I put prompts on the board in my 10th grade English class in the 80s. Uh, I would have kids who said, I have nothing to write about. And I'd say, why don't you start with that prompt? and finish the sentence, and write the next sentence, and that same principle is used in this book. Anybody can do this. Everybody can do this, and everybody should do this. Where do you think it taps into, Lynn? It somehow taps into into places I think I shouldn't go. It almost moves me past my little judgment gremlins, who pop up and say, no, no, don't put that in writing. No, don't, don't say that ever, that's not a good thought. And they just pop out because people in my generation, in the boomer generation, went to school at a time where there was a lot of fill in the blank and those little purple ditto sheets that the teachers passed out, and we filled in the blank. And for the most part, we got rewarded unless we were outrageously creative. And one thought seems to lead to another. If you just have that little nudge to get started and the little nudge somehow can take you away from, from an obsession that you don't like, I guarantee it's going to be back up and on the paper in two minutes or less, but it seems to come organically from somewhere else. I don't even know if that makes sense.
0: It makes sense in that it is a mysterious process and we don't really know where it comes from. It is an extremely mysterious process. Writing
1: is mysterious. The mind, we know like almost nothing about how the mind actually works. And the mind soul body connection is a mysterious process. There's something about actually putting a pen in your hand and writing things out that slows slows down the process enough to give you a little perspective about what you are doing. There's something about opening up a clean sheet of paper on a computer screen that gives you a little bit of perspective. And I write very differently if I'm on the computer or using longhand. Tell me the difference. Difference in the rate that things come out. Also, I don't type real well sometimes, and that can be a block for me on the computer. It's 25% harder to read on a computer screen, so I'm always bumping up the font or picking a new font. There's something about the feel of the pen going over the page that helps me to sink into my own feelings. And I don't have a better way to describe that. Writing in my journal is more leisurely. And often I will take the journal and transcribe it and make a lot of adjustments in the computer. I think they're both very effective. If I know what I'm doing, I should be on the computer. If it's time to meander and create and explore and dig, I should probably be in my journal. And that being said, there are no shoulds. Just do it your way. Mm -hmm. Just do
0: it, actually. Just do it, yes. And... I'd like to hear a little bit more about the workshops that you do for caregivers. I'm I'm guessing that they focus around journaling. Absolutely. And how do people how do people find this wonderful resource because as we mentioned before when you're in the middle of this intense caregiving experience, we can't see an end to it. We often don't get out much or have much time on our own and yet what we need so much is a connection with people in the outside world who are having similar experiences just to know that these sometimes horrific thoughts we're having and fears and worries are not unique. Absolutely, those
1: feelings are not unique. There are two ways you can do my workshops. One is face-to-face and the other is online. Uh, And online isn't literally online, it's done through email. So you don't even have to have an internet connection, you just have to have
0: email. That's great that you make that available to people who maybe can't get to where you are.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I've had people from around the country do the email workshops. What you would need to do is find it online and you can find, here's the shortcut. Go to writer advice, www.writeradvice.com and click on journaling for caregivers. I need to say specifically it is writer advice. There's no S in that word. Um, What kind of people show up in the real world when you have these gatherings? An interesting variety of people. Mostly they are older. Mostly they are women. They need to vent. Many of them are not all that sure about the writing process. Many of them don't know that there are caregiver support groups where you can just vent. Many of them say, I really don't know what to write, but they'll do it for two or three minutes. And then we tell them what we love in the writing, what resonates for us. And suddenly they're feeling very validated. And if we go two rounds, and we usually do, second time they're writing for eight, 10, 12 minutes, because they're starting already to trust their voice. Everybody has a unique voice. Everybody is a writer. No two writers are the same. You just need to trust yourself and do it, and positive feedback will help you to believe you can do it.
0: So what I'm picturing is a circle of people who are have a shared connection because they're all in the process of caregiving, and you offer them prompts, and is there also an opportunity to share their writing aloud? and and the others in the circle respond
1: to it. That's exactly what happens. We talk a little bit. I tell them a little bit about the history of the book. I usually offer three prompts and I tell them they can write on one. I encourage them to write on one and just keep going. But to use more than one if they want to. And I enforce again that there is no wrong way to do this. That every way is is the right way. Because it's their way and it's their journal. We write for a while. And then... I ask if anybody would like to share what they've written. I promise them that we will only say what we love in the writing. And people read, and I often ooh and ah after they're done because there's something in there that I just loved. And then I ask, what did you love in the writing? To the whole group. To the whole group. Mm -hmm. What stays with you?
0: And somebody will say something, and that starts the ball rolling. And do people talk about their personal experiences away from the writing? Is it that kind of sharing? Sometimes
1: they do. I kind of discourage that. I think that belongs in a different kind of group. It's not
0: therapy what you do.
1: No, I do not do therapy. I'm not trying to do therapy. I'm not telling anybody. I don't want to tell people how to solve their problems. Mm -hmm. I want to help them discover possible solutions as they write. But I am not a trained or licensed therapist, and I always say, you can take whatever advice you hear or not take it. This is not a therapy group.
0: As someone who's leading a group, there is probably, I'm guessing, something in your mind that is the golden orb of of possibility that you want each person at the end of the evening to go away with, that they take from the experience in the group away with, what would that golden orb be? The golden orb is, I can do this and it helps
1: and I'm going to do it every day or as often as I can. Of course, I'd love to have them take a book with them, but they're also welcome to buy their own notebook and make a commitment to
0: themselves to journal when they need
1: to process stress.
0: I think that you've just said something so important to make a commitment to themselves because this is about their emotional health and well-being. True, that's exactly right which is the flip side of what most caregivers are involved in. It's not their own health and well-being. It's the health and well-being of the person they're giving care to, and their needs are secondary. And I found in my own situation to find that the most important thing for me to remember on a daily basis that I needed to take care of myself. It's very hard to know that when you're in
1: the middle of it. And I, of course, assumed it was just me. But it wasn't, and I understand that now. If I could give something to the world, it would be, well, to the world of caregivers, it would be for them to know that, yes, it's exactly like flying on a plane. When the oxygen mask drops, if it ever does, you have to put it on your own nose and mouth and breathe normally before you put it on the face of the child, adult dog sitting next to you. You have to take care of yourself first, because if you don't, you will drain the life out of yourself. You will stop caring about everything. You can't be an effective caregiver. You can't be an effective human being. And Just don't go there. Journal instead. Do whatever you can do to keep yourself from going there. Right. It's a
0: horrible place to be. It's a horrible place to be. And the other part of that in the present time is that this phase of your life will end. It will change from what it is right now. Yes, it will. And if you have depleted your life force in the process of caring, there's not going to be a whole lot left of you to take into the next chapter. Would you agree? I would agree, but I also know that you can get it back. Oh, yes, I know that. I absolutely know that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I used to, for a while lately, I've been thinking of my life as an hourglass. It was full, and it was big, and then it narrowed down to this very, very skinny little place where the sand goes through. And those were my six years of caregiving. And then it gradually opened out again when I was no longer a caregiver, I have a lot of people in my life, and I have a ton of projects in my life. And there's almost nobody from my former life, in my current life, because almost all of them disappeared when I was in that
0: tiny little narrow space. Mm. And now it is opened up. That's really marvelous. And I'm thinking that journaling can work and be beneficial for people in any kind of stressful situation. Oh, absolutely.
1: Had I known a year ago what I know now, I would have called this journaling for everybody because we're all caregivers for someone. You can be a caregiver for a spouse, a parent, a special needs child, and anybody who's ever had a 15-year-old knows that they've had a special needs child. (laughs) Um, You can be a caregiver for yourself. And that didn't become really evident until the economic collapse. Um, I have a lot of friends who've lost jobs. And they now have to take care of themselves, not only to get a new job, but to have the energy to go out there and pursue in this very, very, very challenging economy. So everybody is a caregiver for someone. In many ways, my mother was a caregiver for me, certainly when I was a baby and a child. But maybe, maybe in later life, she was also, in some ways, a caregiver for me. I couldn't name a way at the moment. But you get something coming and going and you need to process it. And another thing journaling can do for you is prepare you to talk about subjects that are uncomfortable with a person who is in need of medical care or emotional care Mm -hmm. or whatever.
0: And one more thing before we wrap up, I I wanted to talk about life lessons and how obstacles and hardships can turn into wonderful teaching opportunities Mm -hmm. and learning opportunities. I'm getting a sense that through the journaling, those kinds of things come up for people. They start to harvest little bits of it, and maybe build on that as they're journaling. What am I learning about myself? What am I realizing about my inner strength that maybe I wasn't aware of before? I've seen that happen a lot in the email workshops where people will
1: email their pieces to us. And many of the pieces start with the venting and go into the processing and end with some kind of hope. And they're discovering, they discovering themselves. They're discovering the reason they love the person they are caring for. They're discovering what they do and don't have control over. They are finding their place in the scheme of things. They're hoping for the future. And the bad feelings seem to disappear as they discover, hey, I'm doing the absolute best I can. And we validate that. When you say we, and they they send the emails to us. Say we had a group of six people who were emailing each other in one of my workshops. You would email everybody in the group. Everybody has the right to respond. I'm the only one who's required to. I say what I love in the writing, and often other people will say, oh, you reminded me of the time when, Mm -hmm. or um, they'll just say what they love, say how special something is. It makes you feel empowered. It tells you that your experience is important and special and something that should be, should be shared. And of course, if you are journaling and you ever want to share it with your kids, if you have kids, or other family members, or tell people about your history, you have that there. There are also personal essays and memoirs that evolve out of journals.
0: And I believe that the opportunity to document it Gives power to your voice.
1: Absolutely. It gives it gives power and it gives validity. Power to your voice, validity to the experience, to what you went through, and reinforcement and encouragement to the people who are still going through it.
0: And it's interesting because as you were talking about this email group, I'm thinking the people in the group are nurtured by each other.
1: Absolutely, they are. My next email group will start in mid-July. I believe it's July 13th. And you can email me for information. I'm delighted to send you information. The email is lgood67334 L-G-O-O-D, at comcast.net. And you can also find it on the website. And give us the web address again, please. WriterAdvice. Advice, www.writeradvice.com. Dot com.
0: And of course, it's all one word. Writer advice, not writer's advice, but writer advice. Exactly. <laughs> well, I want to thank you very much, Lynn, for the wonderful work that you have done here because I know from my own experience that there's a great need because you feel like you're in a bottomless pit when you're in the middle of it. And for you to have created these prompts in this wonderful book. You Want Me to Do What? Journaling for Caregivers allows people to get a leg up out of the pit. The pit is not bottomless. And I want to thank you very much for the work that you do.
1: Thank you very much. I am living proof that the pit is not bottomless. (laughs) Yay, Lynn. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. Thank you.
0: I'm Annie Fox for Family Confidential. For more information about my work with tweens, teens, and parents, visit AnnieFox.com. And tune in next time when my guests Carol Normandy and Laura Lee Rourke discuss their book, Over It, a teen's guide to getting beyond obsessions with food and weight. Till then, happy parenting.